0: I know you guys were all talking with your friends and your neighbors, so you probably didn't hear that last song. uh, The key word in that song, though, was hallelujah. How many of you like to say hallelujah? I see a couple hands out there. Okay, not a lot of you, but that's all right. Maybe, just maybe, I can change your mind after this sermon today. We're finding ourselves in Revelation chapter 19. We're getting towards the end of our book study in Revelation. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed growing in this uh, book. And, uh, yeah, we're getting towards the end here. And today we're going to see hallelujahs throughout this chapter. Uh, a hallelujah for God's judgment, which might sound a little bit weird, but we'll look at that in the first few verses. Then a hallelujah for the marriage supper of the lamb. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of that party. And that's going to be exciting to talk about. And then at the end of the chapter, verses 11 to 21, we're going to see a hallelujah For the return of King Jesus. And and there's a clear theme in this chapter, chapter 19, of hallelujah. As you look through it. Hallelujah means praise Yahweh or praise the Lord. Okay, so in response to something incredible, you could say hallelujah. Right? Same thing as saying praise the Lord. With all the bad news that we've endured through Revelation, we come to a chapter where there are some things to celebrate, some things to say, yeah, this is good for my soul. Hearing this, believing this, understanding this, it's good for my soul. So every time today, it's kind of a little bit of a challenge. I'm not sure that any of you are up to it. Or really that any of you will want to take it. But every time I say hallelujah today, I want you to echo it back with great passion, great conviction. Maybe you're not one that normally gives me verbal feedback, but I love verbal feedback, right? You won't throw me off. So I want to hear the passion. I want to hear the conviction. So let's try it real quick, okay? If I say hallelujah, uh, see, that's pretty incredible. I don't know that we're going to have that kind of stamina and make it all the way through my sermon, but I appreciate that. I was ready for cricket cricket. Like, did I hear anybody? You know, but you guys, you guys came out in full force. I think personally, you will do better than they're doing down in Lacey because. Pastor Kevin was going to try to get the same thing. He even had a story that he built up to it with. Me, I said, I'm going to keep it simple. I'm going to ask my people to give me that feedback and I think I get it. So, every time I say that today, I want to encourage you to respond in that way. So, again, the first thing we're going to do, we are going to look at uh, a response to God's judgment in these first five verses of Revelation chapter 19. It says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah. "Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute and uh, who corrupted the earth with her immoral, uh, immorality, and has avenged her on the blood of His servants." Once more they cried out, hallelujah, Hallelujah. the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. Okay, let's pause there. I could keep reading because it all kind of goes together, the first five verses, but I want to pause there real quick, look at a couple of things, then we'll move on to the next slide. John describes what he hears. It's a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. This is awesome. John has done an incredible job by the power of the Holy Spirit to be in this vision and to recount it for you and I today, explaining things he has never seen before throughout the book of Revelation that no one has ever seen before, and and to try to write that down so that we understand what was going on. He's done a great job, and in this case, he wants to know that it's a loud voice, it's a great multitude in heaven, and they are crying out. This is not a reserved and quiet church, right? This is a, this is a group of people here that know how to praise. And anytime a pastor preaches on praise or on singing to God or response, it's tough because we sit out there where you sit and we're the same way a lot of times. And a lot of my pastor's friends are even more reserved than I. I know it's probably hard to believe, but they have tough times praising God and singing and, and and finding that emotional connection, and yet they know that there is importance to that, to worship on those different levels. And so we have become a church in general, uh, especially here in the United States, it's relatively quiet in our worship and our praise. This is not the case here. This is boisterous. This is loud. This is enthusiastic, right? It reminds me, last night I went to a football game, right? And and it's high school football, and there's homecoming, so the crowd might be a little bit bigger than normal, right? And when the team took the field, people got excited, right? And and, and they got excited, and they cheered, and, and when things happened that were good, they were quick to say all right and clap and scream and yell. And I've watched football games professional football games with quite a few of you people out there, whether it's playoffs, Super Bowl, or even an occasional Seahawks game. And I know that you can get loud, right? And yet this is the God of the universe that we're praising. Amen. And we got to be a people who, who are willing to step out of our comfort zone whether it's in agreement with what somebody says or sings or singing along ourselves, allow our souls to be fed because Holy Spirit wants that from you. You can say, God knows what's going on in my heart. He knows what I'm, what I'm thinking. And you know what? That is true. But you could also be an encouragement to those people that are sitting next to you. And here we see the multitude praising God. And it's a beautiful and fitting thing that they first ascribe this praise towards God is salvation. The reason that most of us are here this morning is that we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, right? And he has saved us from our rebellion, our sin, uh, and, and now our eternity is secure in heaven because of what he did on the cross, not because of anything that we've done. If you haven't placed your faith in, in God yet, I'll say yet because I'm praying and hoping that you will. If you haven't yet, you might not fully understand that, but salvation that was obtained by Jesus Christ dying on the cross 2,000 years ago, the Son of God nailed to a tree, is why we come to church on Sunday morning. Whether that sounds weird to you, especially if you're not a believer yet, maybe even a little like morbid, like what, what, what are we talking about? I thought we'd just come and, you know, we might sing a few songs and talk about God. No, God, he wants to save mankind and he knows that the sacrifice needed was his only son. Salvation, the grace that came through that it is a gift beyond any comparison that we could ever receive. And, and I've been pretty excited about gifts that I've received before, right? And, and this action is beyond anything that we could see happen on a football field, baseball, diamond, soccer pitch, whatever it might be, right? Imagine uh, if you're a golfer, a hole in one, right? I mean, those are incredible things and things to get excited about. And you know what God did for us? It doesn't even compare. And so here we see it's worthy of its own Hallelujah. Amen. That God would do so much and give so much for people that rejected and rebelled against him. We can't blame it on just Adam and Eve. Each one of us lives in sin and left on our own would rebel and continue on down the path away from their creator God who loves them. But God loved us enough that even while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus Christ to die for us. It's unimaginable. Yes, amen. It is beautiful. The grace of God based on his character alone. We do not deserve it, right? It's mind-blowing, Think about when your kids are a stinker, right? I mean, just they don't deserve anything but a timeout or or a punishment, however you dole that out at home, and to go to bed, and yet you're able to to love them and bring them in and maybe get them to stop throwing the tantrum that they're under and, and redeem almost that evening. How great that feels. It really does feel great. And I know it's tough with little kids. My youngest now is 17 of our four. And so, you know, you can say, man, Mark, you're a long ways removed from my two-year-old or my three-year-old. But I remember those nights. They are tough. But if you can redeem that evening, it feels great. Well, this is a God of heaven setting forth a plan that can redeem his creation. And John sees that. we got to continue on here. Uh, but the fact that the glory and power belong to our God, we see that in salvation. And we know that. And it's important. And it's great. It, it, but sometimes I think we go, wow, I'm a little surprised. back, Or I haven't thought of that. Or whatever it might be. And you're like, oh, my goodness. And yet it shouldn't be a surprise to us. For God alone is worthy. He alone is the creator God. He alone is the one who could save us. This means that all power is literally sourced in him and found alone in him. This is really cool because there's a problem. You have a perfect God and you have sinful mankind. And if it meant that sinful mankind needed to figure out a way to somehow right the relationship with the perfect God, it would not have happened. And yet, even before Jesus came and died on the cross, came to this earth 2,000 years ago, when you look at the Old Testament, God is a God of relationship. He came to his children. And that is awesome. And now we have been grafted into that. That the power of salvation is sourced alone in God. The glory and power of God, it says, it's been shown in the book of Revelation uh, by the judgment on Babylon. Remember last week we talked about the prostitute riding on the red dragon and how that all related and was it an actual city or is it just the philosophy of life that's so pervasive even in the world today and will be even more so in the future? Whatever that might be, we see God and victory, and this is why verse 2 begins with four, right? When you're looking at that for, God's judgments are true and just. A lot of people don't want to talk about a God who will judge. They want a God who's just full of love. And there couldn't be perfect love without judgment. God has a standard that he has called us to. And In love, he needs us to respond in obedience. Those aren't popular things to talk about in the world, right? That we would actually submit our way to somebody else's, a higher power, right? And yet God is true and just, and so his judgments are also. And so it might feel a little bit weird to praise God for his judgment, and yet we should. When we see God completely eradicate sin at the end of time and we witness that as his bride, right, that will definitely lead us to praise. God is not vindictive, right, in his judgment of Babylon. He is true and just. He gave them time, time after time after time to repent. He is patient. When we look in scriptures, we see that throughout. He is long-suffering. He allows people a lot of rope because he wants them to come back to him. And yet, in the end, what will be judgment is God giving those people what they want. Eternity without him. God is totally true and just. John Piper rightly said, if God turned a deaf ear to sin and evil and injustice and suffering in the world, he would not be true, and he would certainly not be just. God, is, uh, God here is rightfully and wholeheartedly praised for his justice. Babylon needed to go down, and that's what happened here. Let's get on to the next slide here and finish up this first section. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. There we go. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small. And great. Now, you may remember this cast if you've been with us throughout this sermon series. And even if you haven't, you may have read Revelation before or, or, or heard some sermons on it. These 24 elders and the four living creatures, this is not the first time that we've heard about them or seen them. But they are with God in his heavenly throne room. John has seen them before and written about them before in the book of Revelation. And, and their response is completely fitting with this moment. They just fall down before God in worship. I mean, who could stand before the Lord God, right? We will fall on our face. And they simply say, what does it say here? Amen and hallelujah. Amen simply means so be it. We agree. Truth. Everything that just happened, everything that John just wrote about, everything that was witnessed, God's truth and his justice they agree with. This is truth. This third anthem uh, of praise is wonderful. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. We are commanded to praise God. But it, 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 it shouldn't it just come naturally? If you think about what salvation is and what it's saving you from, shouldn't we desire to acknowledge that and talk about that? and sing about that, maybe write poems about it, tell our kids about it, talk to our spouses about it, and our neighbors, and our friends, and our coworkers. This would be best if it flows naturally from our hearts, right? But God, knowing us as human beings, has commanded praise because he is worthy, he is just, he is true, and we have to tell ourselves those things. In light of the reality of life, though, I know for myself, I'm glad that we are told to praise God, because I know there are some weeks I don't feel like praising God. There are some weeks I don't feel like praying to God. There are some weeks that I don't feel like uh, reading God's word, and yet I've been told to do that, and I know that just like any diet, let's say, when you don't feel like sticking to it, you do it. Because then you get the results you want. Fake until you make it, some people say. And it's not fake if you want to be there even though you don't feel it, right? You cannot feel it and still worship God because you know in your heart of hearts and in your brain that you want to be there. You're just not there yet. And God knows that. So although we want our hearts to be in a place, our souls to be in a place that we worship and praise God, there are times that I don't feel like doing that, but I know that I need to. And that's when sometimes I lean and rest on you guys. Whether I'm sitting up front or standing in the back, I close my eyes and I listen to you guys worshiping God because it helps bring me along to the place that I need to be. Praise God. Those who are commanded are called his servants. We talked a little bit about service this morning uh, and the needs that there are. And in God's kingdom, we will be his servants. We're his servants here on earth. There are things he has called us to do. Being part of this family, being part of the bride of Christ, the church, there are things we need to do. And that's, again, something that that those who are saved by his great salvation should already be. Servants. Serving your family. Serving your community. Serving at work. It's not just going to work and working and getting out of there, man. How can we, as children of God, take care of the people we work with, whether they deserve it or not? That's what we've been called to do. Because we need that reminding that we're not just working for our employer, but we're working for God. With all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, we need to be servants of God. We are called to fear God. And, and that's not in the sense of being afraid of him, but it's a reverence and an awe at his power, a respect for him, as, for his person for who God is. Uh, in living in a deference to his will. I'm going to surrender my thoughts on this and I'm going to adopt yours and bring yours in and pray that they become mine. God knows best. You who fear him. He loves you. He sent his son and he is all-powerful, and he is just and he is true. And all those things go together and work together. And lastly, it says those small and great, as a pastor friend of my, and friend of mine, Keith Krell always says, "The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter you're standing here on this earth, how much you're worth or how much debt you have, whether you're a new hire or a CEO. Of a company, right? The, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Small and great. It doesn't matter what the world says about you. God loves you for who you are. And the other thing about the leveling of that is we all know that we are equally sinful. And in need of Jesus' forgiveness. Because sometimes it's easy to look at other people and go, that guy or that gal is screwed up. Man, I'm glad I'm not like that, right? I mean, it's true, or it wouldn't have been in the Bible, right? We we have the the parables, and we see the one, you know, that guy is really messed up. I'm glad I'm not like him. That's what the Pharisees said. Oh, I'm glad I'm not like that person over there. No, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. So some of you here today may have done some bad things in your past. Some of you may have even done some things that are really bad. That maybe nobody knows about or they're far enough in the past that, you know, but Satan will still try to use that against you. And what God would say to you this morning, I truly believe, is that we're all sinful. Everybody here is sinful, right? And God's grace, the blood that was shed from, from Jesus Christ on that cross, is more than enough to cover those sins. Amen? Yeah. We need to be equal in the salvation that's bestowed on us. We need to be equal in our service to the king. Uh, No ministry is greater than the other. It's quite often that I see Pastor Dave out here in the morning putting up the lights, doing all the little things, but then I see him grabbing the little pieces of garbage. And I see him straightening this and that. And and those are the days that I have to say that's where we all should be, right? Because sometimes... Hey, I'll get lost in the, in the important, what's important in my mind, right? I got to get this done. I got to take care of that. And I'll miss some of the little details. And we need to be a people willing to, or we'll see it. That's even worse. I should go there. I should just sit here in front of you and be honest. I'll see something and I'll go, yeah, I'm not going to grab that. I got something else to do, right? And I don't want to be that kind of person. The level, the level ground of the cross is so important. Jesus loves us and he did what he did on the cross for each one of us. These first five verses that we, we just looked at uh, teach us to shout hallelujah, right, for God's judgment. Next, we're going to learn to shout hallelujah for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's move on to verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, Mount says in biblical times, a marriage involved two major events, the betrothal and the wedding. These were normally separated by a period of time during which the two individuals were considered husband and wife. And as such, we're under the obligations of faithfulness. The wedding began with a procession to the bride's house, which was followed by a return to the house of the groom for the marriage feast. By analogy, the church, right, espoused to Christ by faith, when we place our faith in him, now awaits the parousia, when the heavenly groom will come for his bride and return to heaven for the marriage feast that lasts throughout eternity. Man, thinking about it that way, I I thank God for men like Mounts who can write it this clearly when we realize that Jesus Christ is gonna come again and he's gonna take his bride home for an eternity with him. This is a great analogy. The bride and the groom, Jesus Christ and his church. Positionally, you and I are already the bride of Christ, right? But Jesus Christ is again going to come and take his bride home. We already have all the rights and the responsibilities of marriage, and this includes being a pure bride. We see up here clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, that idea of purity, right? And, and yet, we all understand that it isn't perfectly so quite yet, right? We understand from this that we are still living here on this earth. We still struggle with sin. We live in a world full of disease and pain. We understand this. Now, although we are positionally pure before God, amen, thank you, Jesus Christ, for the salvation and the purity that you provided, nothing that I did on my own, on the cross that you have given to me, now I am positionally pure before God. We need to strive every day to be more like Jesus. So that's what I'm going to call you from the stage every week, hopefully, to be a little bit more like Jesus than you were the day before. Those aren't just trite words. That is a calling that I believe is on the church. We need to be more like our Savior. Now, we look forward to the time that our marriage to the Lamb is complete. And it is coming. Praise God for that, right? We will sin no more. And we will be face to face with God in complete purity. Again, by his power, not our own. But in the meantime, uh, the righteous deeds of the saints, that's got to be our goal. That's our responsibility. We can't just say, well, I'm not not in heaven yet, so I'm going to keep screwing up, and that's okay. No, we want to be a little bit more like Jesus each and every day. It's an act of praise to Jesus as our bridegroom. Because of the salvation you provided for me, I need to be a person that's willing to say no to certain things because they don't honor God. So this hymn of hallelujah, there you go. I know we're getting tired of it, but it'll be worth it in the end. Is when the reality of marriage, uh, the marriage to the lamb is complete. This is a, a pretty cool realization. God reigns and the marriage of the lamb has come. This is good stuff. And with all the heavy chapters we've already looked at, this is a great chapter to be in here with just a couple of weeks remaining. We'll continue on to verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That might be an understatement. That might be the understatement of the year. I can't believe... In some aspects, I can't believe that I am invited into this sort of relationship with a creator God. There should be some awe to your salvation. There should be some awe, right, to to the realization that God in heaven, the perfect God creator, has extended an invitation for salvation unto you that you can leave behind you by his power, his grace, sin and rebellion and move towards an eternity with your heavenly father. That is pretty awesome, right? It's hard to understand or fathom sometimes. But by the grace of God, I believe in Jesus Christ. He is my savior. I believe that he died for my sins, my rebellion, my transgression. And by trusting in him, and him alone, I can be saved. I can be forgiven. So my invitation is already sent, and God's not going to take back the invitation that he sent out. You've got it. It's yours. It's yours forever, right? And we, we've RSVP'd. We've accepted that gift. And, and, and this date is set in the future. And you don't want to miss out on this event, Interestingly enough, after John is told to write the things that that the angel has told him, these words are God's, these words are true, right? Uh, In case you weren't clear, I just want you to know that, right? These are God's words. Then John, the beloved, the one who's had this revelation and has written it all down for you and I, and was one of the best friends of Jesus and reclined at table with him, one of his closest friends, he screws up. And in some ways, we have to be encouraged by this. No matter how good our lives are going right now, how good our walk is with God, we are gonna screw up. And yet, we can make it right we can ask for forgiveness. We can turn from whatever that sin might be and, and head in the right direction again. Look what John does. He falls down at the feet of this angel to worship him. I mean, I want to say, come on, John, right? How how do you screw up this bad? And the, the angel doesn't let him think about it long. <laughs> Quick rebuke here. But then I realize something. As I was reading this and studying this this week and talking to Kevin about this, you and I, if we're honest, are one quick, bad decision away from sin quite often, right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, idolatry pops its head up in so many ways. Man, if I could just have this better car, look at that, we could probably figure out a payment. I could justify that. All I can think about now is this new car. Nothing wrong with new cars. Nothing. But if that becomes the idol, and that's all you're focused in on, right? What if it's, you know, something else you can set up as an idol, whether it's work, finances, your spouse, your children, somebody else. Man, there's so many things that that are tempting, that don't seem wrong. John was excited about what he just heard. I'm going to fall down and worship this angel because he's talking good stuff. And yet the angel knew, like John knew, that worship is reserved for God. Right? And, and instead, John is tempted to worship the messenger. We just need to be aware if John, the best friend of Jesus, right? One of his closest. Spent all that time on earth with him. Then spend all this time in the, in the book of Revelations, this vision. Jesus is there speaking to him, speaking. He's in the presence of Jesus. And yet, if he could fall, why wouldn't I or shouldn't I believe that I could? i got to be uh, on the alert. You and I both. we got to be on the alert. And look what the angel says. He gives three reasons John shouldn't worship him. Hey, I'm a fellow servant. Okay, Though that's pretty good. Again, level at the foot of the cross, which you're like, well, but that's an angel. This is a heavenly being. Yes, it is. But that shows that highly exalted Jesus, right? God in three persons, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, and God the Father are the only ones exalted above that level playing ground, right? I'm a fellow servant. Worship God alone, he says. And then he says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy now the first two are fairly self-explanatory the final is likely pointing to the whole of scripture okay i hope you love god's word and i hope you value it and i hope you desire to know it and i hope you find uh, a, a, just an appetite for devouring god's word that's what he has given us We can't read a bunch of self-help books, even if they're written by Christian authors, if we're not reading God's word first. It's not going to help. A chapter on being a better person with one verse thrown in is not going to get the life change that God's word can. So this final uh, thing that he's pointing out is pointing to the whole of scripture. The spirit of all prophecy points to Jesus. And his testimony about Jesus—it's not supposed to point to the messengers, but only to Jesus. And so, when the when John is tempted to fall and worship the angel, the messenger, he points back to Jesus, the Word, right. We don't worship angels. We don't worship apostles. We don't worship the writers of scripture. We don't worship a pastor or or, or a, uh, a televangelist or a, a speaker. God alone deserves our hallelujah. All right, amen. Finally, so we've seen a hallelujah for God's judgment. We've seen a hallelujah for the marriage of the supper of the lamb. And finally, we're going to see a hallelujah for the, yeah, I hear you each time, the king Right, the return of the king. King Jesus returning, the last section. Let's dive into this. Then I saw heaven open, and this is, this is great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest, this is one of my favorite parts of any passage in scripture since I was a little kid, okay? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get through this quickly. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which he is called is the word of God. And Lord of Lords. We are seeing the return of King Jesus. He's gonna return in his glory and power. He's gonna return to judge all of those who rejected him, and he will defeat his enemies. King Jesus returns in his glory. Now, if you remember when he entered Jerusalem, Right, The final week of his life, before his arrest, his trial, his execution, he humbly rode in on a donkey. He wanted everyone to know that he was not coming for a political uprising, but for a spiritual upheaval. His disciples up to that point and even after that point still thought that he was there to overthrow Rome. They had spent three years with him. They had heard him teach and preach and talk. They had sat around the table and had the the personal, intimate conversations, and they were still confused. So Jesus says, I'm going to ride in on a donkey. This time he does not. That all changes when he comes back the final time. He is riding a white horse to signify victory. As I was reading up on this, in Rome, after they conquered a city or or conquered another area, they would celebrate, not only in that city, but back home in Rome, and the, the commanders would ride on white horses for the show, right? It wasn't even necessarily the horse they brought into battle, but the white signified that, and so the readers of this day would click and understand, Jesus is coming in victory. He's coming in victory, It's not just that he is faithful and true, like we have already talked about today, but he is actually named faithful and true. Faithfulness and truth are Jesus. They're not just characteristics. You and I as human beings can work to be a faithful person. Or one that's surrounded themselves with an, an, an era or an aura, I should say, of truth. Like, that's an honest person. I like talking to him. Right? That's not Jesus. He's not trying. He is faithful and true. And those are his names. And his judgment will be righteous. It says, his eyes like a flame of fire. Again, uh, imagery we've already seen before. Fire that burns to the core and exposes right? Exposes truth. He sees through it all. Doesn't matter what kind of wall you try to put up, how you try to hide what's inside. Jesus will see what's in there. The diadems are crowns that he rightfully alone deserves. No more crown of thorns like he wore to the cross, but a crown of the king of kings. The name that no one knows but himself, right? Lest we think somehow that Jesus or even Holy Spirit are less than God the Father, right? We must understand that we cannot fully understand Jesus, right? The Trinity, there is there is a, something we can't understand and we can't know because they are God, right? We can't understand that fully. Jesus is greater than you and I can ever understand or comprehend, and part of that is he has a name that nobody knows but himself. You might just think, well, that's kind of crazy. That's kind of weird. I, I, I don't even get to know it. Why did God put that in there? Why did he tell John through this vision to put that in there? And yet I think there needs to be an awe and wonder. Do you ever find yourself where you kind of start feeling like you understand God? And you kind of put him in your own little box. And you know, these are the things I need to avoid. These are the things I can kind of ask for. Yeah, I kind of got, you know, I got God, I understand God. I think I know Jesus. And he's saying, no, he's greater than that. Verse 13 points uh, to the judgment that he's going to bring with him. His clothing that's dipped in blood, right, dipped in blood. And and don't forget that Jesus became blood-soaked on the cross to provide a way out of this final judgment, right, right? But he is the the blood that, that was shed by his martyred children, right? The blood that was shed on the cross. The blood from the battle with Babylon. Judgment is coming. The name by which we do know him is the word of God. Again, the importance of the Bible, God's word. These are spoken words. These are words written down by fallible men, but given to them by the Holy Spirit. It is important to understand that God has given us his word. It's one of my favorite names for Jesus, the word of God. It appears in the first chapter of John, the same writer as well. We, 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 we've done sermons written or or that we've written on Jesus being the word of God. And so we don't have time to go into that really in depth. But if you haven't thought about that or processed that, I would say jump into John, his gospel, and read about Jesus being the word of God. It's worth it. Good personal study. And it'll bring you to a place of worship. Bottom line, Jesus is God's perfect communication and revelation. And we have that in our scriptures. Verse 14 says that the armies of heaven also accompany Jesus on white horses. God's people will be victorious, again, not by any effort of our own, but because of Jesus. The victories are through him and because of him. And like we said, Jesus doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us to hop on the horse and head into battle. And yet he wants us and invites us to come along. We'll be spectators of this. Again, the imagery here that John uses, a a sword, a staff, and a wine press. These are images of authority with which Jesus returns to this earth with. Now these themes, they find themselves all the way from the Old Testament through the New Testament. The sword, the staff, the wine press. Jesus will show his authority in his return. And the robe he's wearing, and um, maybe overstepping my bounds here, it's a tattoo on his thigh maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not saying that it is. But he's got a robe that he's wearing and some sort of writing on his leg, king of kings and lord of lords, right? This rounds out the theme of how, how Jesus comes perfectly in the end, right? He, he's ready for this return in all aspects. King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth uh, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting On the horse and against his army. Okay, this is kind of an an ominous scene here. The angel standing in the sun, right? And the birds are getting orders to devour flesh. Okay, so again, some weird stuff going on here. Uh, But all those that are gonna fall in this battle, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen birds tear apart roadkill, right? It's not good. I mean, they go after that, right? And it's not a pretty sight, right? And, and also it's a huge insult in a lot of uh, societies, I would say almost anywhere, if, if you are left out after you have passed, after you've died, whether you've been killed or whatever had happened, to be eaten by the birds. Every culture believes in some sort of proper burial. You don't just leave a pile of people out there, right? And, and so this is just describing what's going to happen in the end. And verse 18 again reminds us that that just as the ground is level at the foot of the cross, Jesus is also equally unbiased in his judgment of those who reject him. This is something that I've heard, especially in society today, but this person's really, really great. This person did so many good things. This person stands for a lot of good stuff, but that's not what God will judge people on. If they have rejected him, they have rejected him no matter where their stature in society is. Verse 19 gets us ready for the battle that is coming. The final couple of verses here in chapter 21. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Hell was created for Satan. Hell will be eternity away from God. And that is what Satan deserves in his rebellion. It's fitting that Satan and his Antichrist, the false prophet, will be the first inhabitants of hell. That they will be thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur forever. The rest were slain by the sword here only to awaken to the great white throne judgment that awaits all those who die without trusting in Jesus. The final judgment. And then in great humiliation, their flesh, their bodies, here on earth, will fill the bellies of the birds of this earth. Jesus will come with great finality on that day. He has been patient. He has been long-suffering. But time is up. He came. He saw. He conquered. Hallelujah. There are things to praise God about. Salvation comes from Jesus Christ to all of those who believe. If you accept that free gift, that understanding that God is God, God is perfect, and I am not, no matter how good I am, I can never be good enough for God. There isn't a cosmic scale that's gonna weigh out my bad deeds and my good deeds. No. One bad deed is enough to throw it all off kilter, and yet... The blood of Jesus Christ that's offered freely as a sacrifice to you and I washes over us and corrects that wrong. In the sight of God, I believe that if I were to die today and I stood before God the Father and he asked me, Mark, why should I let you into heaven? I would say to him, because of your son and the sacrifice on Calvary. Because the the blood that was shed. It's not anything that I've done. I haven't lived a good life, but I've accepted a free gift from you because you love me, and you chose to extend that free gift to me. And it's available for each one of you today. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can do that today. Come talk to myself, Pastor Dave, uh, Vanessa, or any of the worship team, or talk with the person you came with, and I'm sure they would love to explain it more to you.